Okay, well, good morning. It's good to see you. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Steve. I'm married to Tammy, and we help lead this growing family of churches that we call uh, Central Vineyard. It's uh, wonderful to be here this morning. We get to travel a lot at the moment around our various different church locations, and so I'm conscious that we're not always here, uh, but when we are here, it's always good to see lots of new faces, and if we haven't met yet, we'd love to say hi to you. I was speaking in our Wellingborough location last week, and uh, one of the questions, or at least one of the thoughts that I kind of presented was this idea that we all have a theology of God. All of us, regardless of how long we may have called ourselves a Christian or a follower of Jesus, uh, we all have a vision of who God is. And here's the deal, that might be wrong, and that might be right. Uh, You might be wrong about what you think about God, what your theology of God is, and equally, you might be right. So one of the ways that we determine that question is actually to think about where our theology of God actually comes from. I mean, does our understanding of God come from our religious upbringing? Do we, you know, the thoughts that we have about God, are they simply shaped by what we've been brought up to believe? Is it from our culture at large? Superstition. You know, our culture has a lot to say, doesn't it, about what God may or may not be like. Maybe what you think about God is just hearsay. It's things that you've heard on the grapevine. You see, our theology of God, if we're, if we're going to figure out who God is and what God is like, we can, we can go to all those different places to figure it out. But actually, the utmost way that we can discover who God is, is found in the scriptures. Over the past few weeks, we've been going through a teaching series centered on Exodus uh, 34, verses 6 and 7. And really, this passage of Scripture is kind of like ground zero for God's self-declaration. You know, if you were to ask the question, what God is like, this is the first place that we turn to, where God says, this is who I am. And so we're going to read that passage again. I've asked Tommy, Tommy to come and read it to us. Why don't we stand for the reading of God's Word? And um, Tommy's going to read this, these two verses to us again this morning. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Why don't we take a seat? So we've been going through this passage of Scripture uh, line by line over the last uh, few weeks. First, we looked at the Lord, uh, and then we looked at this idea that the Lord is the one who's compassionate and gracious. Last week, if you were around, we looked at slow to anger, that he's slow to anger and he's slow to anger. Um, And uh, we also, so this means this week we've reached this part of the passage where it says he's abounding in love and faithfulness. 
So this phrase, love and faithfulness, really we get from two Hebrew words, ased and emet. Ased and emet. Ased is, there really isn't an equivalent uh, English word, uh, but throughout the, the scriptures we do see some different phrases used to describe what this word means. Sometimes it's translated as steadfast love, unfailing love, or another way of describing has said is covenant loyalty. And now in a lot of ancient texts, like the Hebrew scriptures, if they really wanted to make a point, if they really wanted to drive something home, uh, as we see here, that, that, that they would say the phrase twice. Uh, there's this Hebrew dualism where they would just repeat the phrase again and again, back to back, to, to drive home a point. And we see this here. God reveals his name, and he says, it says he's abundant. He's abundant. He's spilling over in love, in a said. But, see, but he's also emets. He's also, he also has faithfulness. Literally, that word means truth. It's actually connected to another word we say in church quite a lot, amen. Yeah? Um, and, but also, it can be translated as trustworthy. It gives us this image that God is reliable, that he can be counted on, that he won't let us down, unlike many of us. You know, when life gets hard, so many of us up and run, don't we? When things are no longer easy or fun, or they get difficult or uncomfortable or boring, we have a tendency to just, to just leave. We leave jobs, we leave communities, we leave churches, we leave friendships, we leave marriages, we cut all ties and we move on. But God isn't like that. God, the scriptures declare, is faithful. And so um, when we put these two words together, hesed and emet, when we say God is abounding in love and faithfulness, we are essentially putting two nouns together that help to define each other. They, we put these two words together and they help describe a single idea. A bit like the phrase, nice and warm. How many of us are longing for it to be nice and warm? You know, we're, we're looking to that season, aren't we? And, and that's kind of what's going on here. When, when we see these two phrases together, it's almost saying that God's love is his faithfulness, and God's faithfulness is his love. And so, you know, that's a way of emphasizing uh, the point. And yet, just translating those words, love and faithfulness, isn't enough. It said and emet is about God's loyalty, how he, he never, ever abandons his people, that he's faithful to the bitter end, no matter what the cost in the Psalms, the Psalms, uh, Psalms alone use this phrase, love and faithfulness, nearly 120, 126 times. One example would be Psalm 89. 
Verses 1 and 2, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you, are, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. A bit further on in verse 28, God declares the truth of the coming Messiah. And he says, I will maintain my love to him forever. And my covenant with him will never fail. Verse 33, but I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. The truth is we could turn to hundreds of verses in in the scriptures, particularly in the Psalms, where it talks about God's love and faithfulness. It's one of the big themes of the Bible, one of the main expressions of worship in the Psalms themselves. This, this idea of God's love and faithfulness has inspired poetry and music and awe and gratitude and prayer and hope. It's been a theme that has inspired many. But we can't truly wrap our heads around a said and a met without understanding the concept of covenant. The Hebrew scholar Daniel Block says this, the Hebrew has said cannot be translated with one English word. As I said, that the word love almost feels too weak to describe what this means. Instead, he says this, he says, as said, this is a covenant term, wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God. So said is a covenant term. Now, covenant isn't a word that we use today. Uh, covenant is a word from a, an age gone by in an ancient world. A covenant was essentially a combination between a promise and a, and a legal uh, contract. And yet, in the scriptures, we see it was rooted in relationship. Two or more people would make a promise, then, in effect, sign a contract, which clearly defines the terms or breaking it. I guess the closest thing that we have in our culture to a covenant would be marriage. Just over 20 years ago, it's hard to believe, just over 20 years ago, Tammy and I stood in front of our family and friends and said, I do. Uh, We made a covenant. We exchanged vows and we made a promise to one another. Marriage is a covenant. It's a promise to love and stay faithful to your spouse. But it's a covenant. It's also a binding contract. Uh, When we marry, we sign our lives away. Some of us are thinking, yes, I know. Um, But there are consequences, aren't there, if we don't keep our promise. There are consequences if we break the promise we made. And throughout the story of the scriptures, we see it has a lot to say about God making covenants. One of the key moments in the scriptures where God makes a covenant is in Genesis 12. There we see God's creation is corrupted uh, by sin. Evil has entered into the world. And God chooses this nobody, this nomadic man called Abraham. And he calls him to be the one who brings creation back in order. 
And we see the first thing that God does with Abraham is he makes a covenant with him. He makes a promise to him. Genesis 12 and verses 2 and 3. It says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and ever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Do you notice the I will language there? That's, that's God's covenant motif. God's promise to Abraham is that through his family, he will become a great nation. And, and in the process, he promises to bless that nation. But not just that, he will also bless all peoples of the earth through that nation. God is going to put right everything that's gone wrong, but he's going to do it through a family. He's going to do it through this man, Abraham. But what we have to understand is is that God's blessing doesn't equal a carefree existence with money in the bank and a holiday home in the Seychelles. That isn't what God's blessing looks like. God does promise to bless Abraham, but Abraham's life wasn't a walk in the park. It wasn't easy. And at the heart of this promise is that Abraham's family will kind of function as a conduit, as, as mediators for, for God to bring life and to reverse the effects of the curse that's entered into creation. As we follow the story of Abraham, uh, we get to the point where it looks like God is being unfaithful with his promise. Years have passed since he encountered God in Genesis 12, but Sarah, his wife, still hasn't given birth to a child. And now both Abraham and Sarah are facing old age. They're not in that, how do we say, baby-making season of life. Um, They're they're not there, not in that place anymore. And I guess the question is, how, how are these OAPs, Uh, with infertility issues, going to give birth uh, and be parents to a nation. It seems impossible, doesn't it? It seems impossible. Uh, and And that's true of us as well. Often we can look at the promises God has spoken into our lives. And as we compare that to our current circumstances, sometimes it doesn't feel like it lines up. Does it? It doesn't. It feels like there's this mismatch between what God has promised and my current reality. And so, with all that going on, we get to this really strange moment in Genesis chapter 15. Um, Genesis chapter 15. You look these up when you get home. I ain't got time to read them today. But basically, what happens is God tells Abraham to take some animals. Uh, to take some goats and cows and doves and to cut them in half. Okay, cuts these animals in half. It's a bit like way before Damien Hurst and the Turner Prize, you know, um, 
But he cuts these animals in half. And, in, and what he's to do with these animals is to make like a bloody pathway, if you like, with these animals that are cut in half. If you think visually, it's a bit gross, I suppose. But, but he, creates, he told him to create like this bloody pathway, just wide enough for two people to walk shoulder to shoulder. And as they walk together through this pathway, essentially what they're saying to one another is, is this. If one of us breaks this agreement, we will end up like those goats, cows, and doves. <laughs> Okay, if one of us break the covenant that we're now making between ourselves, then, then that, that's what's going to happen. We're going we're gonna to die. And so God proclaims his promise to Abraham. He says his descendants will inherit the land, that his descendants will outnumber uh, the stars in the sky. God makes his covenant, and Abraham sets everything up. But then the story takes a little bit of a bizarre, bizarre turn because God makes Abraham fall asleep. And God takes the covenant alone. He walks the path by himself. And it's like God saying, even if Abraham and his children don't keep their end of the deal, God will keep his promise. He will still rescue and save the world through this soon-to-be nation, no matter what the cost. And if blood is to be spilt, it's not going to be the blood of Abraham and his, and his descendants. If blood is to be spilt, it's going to be God himself. He's willing to die. He's willing to become like those carved-up animals to keep his promise, to bring the world back to life. And the truth is, the rest of the Old Testament and really the rest of the, the Bible is about God who is faithfully keeping his promise with Abraham's family. Whilst Abraham's family, which become the nation Israel, fail continuously. They fail continuously. And then we fast forward and Jesus, Jesus arrives. And, and Jesus, as we know, is God in the flesh. Theologians have debated this idea for years that, that Jesus is fully man and fully God. <laughs> that he's, he's God incarnate, God in the flesh. But we also need to see that he's also Israel in the flesh. He's Israel's king. He's, he's a representation, drawing the story of Israel on his shoulders. He's God and he's Israel in the same place. In the Gospel of John, it says, Jesus was full of grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. This is actually a quote from Exodus 34. It just kind of gets lost in translation from Hebrew to Greek to English, just the way it goes. But what John is saying is that Jesus is the embodiment of a said intimate. He's, he's the embodiment of love and faithfulness. Jesus comes to do what Abraham and Israel were supposed to do, but never could. He comes to bless the world, to, to bless all creation because uh, thousands of years before, God made a promise. God made a covenant. 
And when Israel failed and didn't live up to her calling, he was still faithful. Even before that, when Adam failed, he was still faithful. When you and I failed, he was still faithful to bless, to heal, to set free, to to save. See, Jesus takes all our failures, doesn't he? And he takes a generation of broken promises and he drags them to the cross, absorbing them in his death. And he breaks the power that they have over humanity through his resurrection. That's good news. That deserves a amen. (laughs) We need to be Pentecostal sometimes. God keeps his promise and he's faithful to the point of death. He's faithful to the point of death. And it's still not done, is it? It's still not done. He will keep all his promises. And Jesus is going to return to see to it, to make sure it happens. And it's because of God's love and faithfulness, we can look forward to a world set free from the power of of sin and death that the brokenness we currently experience will be gone. It will be over. We can put our hope in that. You know, we can put all our chips on the table. We can bank on it. We can, we can hope in him. And hope isn't just wishful thinking, okay? Don't ruin Star Wars anymore. <laughs> it isn't, I hope I win the lottery, Good luck with that, and remember your pastor if you do. Um, To the writers of the scriptures, hope is the absolute expectation of everything coming good based on the character of God. That we can have hope because of who God is. That he's loving and faithful in every way. It's this idea that no matter what, no matter how many things that we do to mess up, no matter how many wrong turns that we make, we can sleep peacefully at night because we know that one day God is going to fulfill his promises. No matter what. No matter what, he's going to fulfill his promises. He will renew the earth and he will bless all the peoples of the earth through his son, Jesus Christ. He's going to do that. And it's because of him being abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, the truth that we see in the scriptures uh, is that Abraham's story and, and Israel's story is actually our story as well. It's our story as well. And like them, we've, we've failed over and over again. But still, God remains faithful. Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy 2. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. See, the Apostle Paul sees that God's faithfulness is linked to his name and his nature. God could no sooner be unfaithful than he could be a thief or a robber or a cheat. 
And God is faithful even when we're not. Even when we mess it up, when we drop the ball. But the truth is, there are times in our life when God doesn't feel like he's faithful. Of our life where we're not sure. We're not sure of his faithfulness. There are times in our lives when our 90-year-old wife still hasn't had a baby. And we think, what's, what's with that, God? You made a promise. You said this was going to happen. Where are you? And we all have moments in our lives, don't we, where we say, yeah, but. You say God is faithful, yeah, but. And we all have those moments. If God is faithful, then why did I get that diagnosis? If, if God is faithful, then why did they leave? Why did I have to go through that messy divorce? If God is faithful, why has my child gone off the rails? If, if God is faithful, then why am I in so much pain? The truth is, when we say God is faithful, we don't mean we'll never experience suffering. And yet a lot of people think God's faithfulness means some kind of promise where we live this pain-free existence. And so when tragedy strikes or the economy falls or we get that diagnosis or we never find a spouse, we think God is somehow unfaithful. But that's simply a misunderstanding of God's promise. God never said you would have a trouble-free life. In fact, Jesus makes the opposite promise. He says, in this world you will have trouble. That's not the, that's not the popular fridge magnet, is it? <laughs> in this world you will have trouble. Take heart because I have overcome. That's not a popular verse. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't want us to be satisfied, doesn't want us to have a rich life. I believe he does. But I also believe he's a good father who takes the long view. He's a father who's willing to discipline his kids, to see them grow and mature. You see, God is more concerned with our long-term character than our short-term comfort. And he's more than willing to sacrifice one to get to the other. How many of us know that? You know, there's seasons in our life where clearly God is working something out in us. He's doing something in us. Here's another thought, and you're going to have to hold with me as I say this. God doesn't always get what he wants. Remember Jesus said, your will be done. The truth is, there are other wills at play to God's will, God's heart for our lives. As I see it, God is not responsible for evil, ever. Things like cancer, HIV, abuse, our own mistakes, the stuff, all that stuff doesn't come from God. You know, evil is an alien intruder. It's not a friend of God. It's not part of God's creation. It's his enemy. 
but we do see, don't we, throughout the scriptures, that God can use evil for his good. That he can take the things that we face, the pain, the suffering, the the evil things that come our way, and turn them for good. But many of us struggle with that. And a lot of people are angry with God for stuff that he has nothing to do with. He has nothing to do with any of those things. And so it seems to me that the scriptures tell us uh, God's will is one will amongst many. And he's the one who's patiently dealing with the mess of our lives, giving us space and free will to make decisions as he graciously draws good out of evil. As one New Testament put, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. This means whenever bad stuff happens to us, that that's clearly against the will of God. The truth is God is far more powerful than any evil we face. That he can overcome what we face. And so our hope isn't found in nothing bad happening or in everything that does happen to us being God's will. We don't find hope in those places. Our hope is that no matter what happens to us, Jesus is back from the dead. (laughs) Jesus is back from the dead, and anything is possible. John Mark Comey says this, Yes, yes, sometimes things go horribly wrong, but the resurrection is a megaphone turned up to 11, screaming, God is bigger than evil and stronger than death. The empty tomb dwarfs every tragedy we ever face with his promise to make all things beautiful in their time. And so where are we landing with this? God's promise isn't that we marry our dream spouse, get famous, make a ton of money, and retire at 40 to play golf in the sunshine. Some of you are thinking, damn. (laughs) God's promise is that he will bless us. So we can, in turn, bless others. God said he will bless us, so we can bless others. He puts us right so we can help to put others right. And one day in time, he'll return to finish the job. The job that he started of making all things new. And so the question I want to leave you with this morning is this. What promise has God written on your heart? What has the Spirit of God whispered to your spirit? What's the promise? What's the vision he's given you? What has he said will be done in his time? What has he spoken over you? Like Abraham and Sarah, those whispers often come years before an Isaac arrives. <laughs> those, those promises often come long before a fulfillment. 
And often, they seem unlikely and impossible. The waiting on God's promises can test our faith, can't it? It can, it can test our faith and take us to our limits. And there are often seasons in our lives when everything in our present reality seems to contradict the promises that God has spoken into our future. And so what has God promised you? When you're quiet before God, what rumbles deep in your soul? (laughs) What's the longing? What's the ache? What's the sense of destiny that lies within you? You see, the truth of everything that we thought about this morning is this. God will be faithful to his promises. That if God has made a promise, then he will be faithful. The problem is, is that we so often take other people's promises, don't we? So often we abuse the scriptures, we, we pick out verses and we take them out of context and we make them our promises. I'm not sure that that's how we're meant to handle the promises of God. What has God said to you? What has God promised to you? What has he um, given you a vision for in the future? And here's the thing, no matter how much you mess up, no matter how many other wills are at play in our world, God's bigger than all of it. He's bigger than all of it. He can deal with all of it. His, his ability to fulfill his promises supersedes the lot. Why? Because he's abounding in love and faithfulness. That's his self-declaration. It's, that's what he says he's like. He's a, abounding in love and faithfulness. He keeps his promises. He's a a good father who who keeps the promises he makes. That's what God is like. That's the God we serve. So why don't we stand and we'll pray.